In a world where fans have grown tired of the same old cookie-cutter Comic-Con formats, only one con defies the odds. Only one Comic-Con stands what fans really want. Only one Comic-Con dares calls itself terrific. That's right. This August 17th through the 19th at the all-new giant-sized Mohegan Sun Expo Center in Uncasville, Connecticut, comes Terrific Con. Connecticut's Terrific Comic Con is back with New England's largest gathering of comic book artists and writers. Plus, Terrific Con delivers actors from your favorite TV shows and movies. And there's an all-new expanded gaming section as we give you tabletop gaming, video games, and so much more. Plus, don't forget, all kids 10 and under get in free at Terrific Con and can be part of the all-new All Yeah Kids Comic Con. Join us for three full days of Comic Con action only in Connecticut at Terrific Con. For more information, go to our website, www.terrificcon.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntra is here, really excited for today's conversation with Kelly Carlin. Kelly is the daughter of the incredible comedian George Carlin, and is here today to talk about the George Carlin Commemorative Collection, a new HBO box set that has all 14 HBO specials plus a lot more material from the stand up genius. It is available now on DVD, CD, and Blu ray. That's the 10 disc box set. It features more than five hours of previously unreleased bonus material, including rare performances, footage from Carlin's personal archive. It's incredible, and I'm really excited to talk to Kelly. She helped compile material for the box set. And uh, it's it's great because it really represents the many stages of George Carlin's comedy career. And man, I'll tell you, I'm such a George Carlin fan, as I'm sure many of us are. And it was always as someone who watched the evolution of George Carlin's comedy. And, and that's what makes this box set so special. Because, you know, you might know him from his comedy albums. You might know him from his HBO specials that went until literally, you know, right before his death. He started as a very traditional stand-up comedian. Uh, really, he started in radio, as uh, we discuss in the conversation. And it was just incredible to reach back, even on his early comedy albums, and hear a very traditional, you know, for lack of better uh, comparisons, a Bob Newhart sort of style, uh, sketches. Uh, he, again, came from radio, so a lot of his sketches were kind of fake little radio shows or TV shows, and... He had Al Sleep, the hippy-dippy weatherman, and that might kind of been the first step in transitioning into uh, the more counterculture voice that uh, he established in the very late 60s and early 70s. He let his hair grow out. As we discussed, he became 30 during the summer of love in 1967, and he really had this change of mind and related more to the people younger than him than he did the traditional Ed Sullivan variety show stand-ups like Alan King and the like in the generation that preceded him. And in doing so, he changed his comedy and really kind of became part of the protest movement of the 60s and the 70s. And that's when his comedy albums really took off. Albums like Class Clown and Occupation Fool, which were gigantic hits. Those led to the HBO specials that started in the mid-70s. Carlin continued to evolve in the 80s and then had another massive shift in the very late 80s, early 90s, and that was kind of the last iteration of the Carlin comedy. So again, you had that 60s period, that 70s period, that 80s period, and then in the 90s, into the 2000s, George's final evolution. And I think each time he found a new way to express his point of view in comedy uh, to a very eager audience, all the way till his death just 10 years ago. 
So uh, it's a very exciting time to uh, spend with Kelly Carlin talking about the legacy of her father, George Carlin, on today's Word Balloon. Kelly Carlin, I am so pleased to talk to you. Welcome to Word Balloon. I'm very excited about this new DVD box set featuring your father. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And yeah, I'm excited about the box set too. You know, it's always fun to present um, new things from my dad and especially some hidden gems that are in it. So that's the most fun. Absolutely. Really excited about the hidden gems. I'm a, I wouldn't say lifelong fan of your father's because although my parents were cool, I, they gave me class clown for Christmas when I was like 12 years old. And well, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, really opened, opened up this new world of comedy to me. And then I reached back and got like takeoffs and put ons one of his earlier albums. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And then truly ever since 40 years later, I, I really hunt down anything with your father. In fact, like a week or two weeks ago, I was watching Amazon prime and I know he had talked about it in the past, but I caught one of those early episodes of that girl. When he was oh, Marlo yes. Thomas's agent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I used that clip in my solo show that I was doing um, to kind of tee up the idea because he really wanted to be Danny Kaye when he was growing up. Like that was his dream was to be in the movies someday. And so when he started getting a little traction as a stand-up comedian and getting, you know, TV time and stuff like that, he was like, okay, now I'm ready to go into acting. And he, he booked that, that girl and, um, he hated it. He felt unnatural. I mean, he was very unnatural. He was completely a ham. Uh, he felt awkward. He didn't know what to do. Um, it was completely out of his comfort zone. And um, he realized, oh, yeah, I guess I don't want to be that part. I don't want to be the Danny K part. <laughs> well, I can appreciate him feeling uncomfortable. But honestly, I thought he did fine. I mean, it was such a, you know, generic little role and of course the laugh track is helping every laugh line that he delivers yeah but he didn't you know i thought he did really i thought he did fine i i, I even instagrammed i had to freeze frame it because he's in this blue surge suit and just looking very mm -hmm. madman-esque and certainly mm -hmm. you know later fans are used to you know your dad with the beard the ponytail everything you know uh and uh and yeah i mean here's clean cut george so yeah i'm really excited again about some of these these hidden gems. I mean, I'm really, I, I you know, in the hour that we're going to talk, I really want to like go back to the beginning and his DJ stuff as well. But what can you tell us about some of this these uh, hidden gems from the past? Well, a couple of my favorites are um, there's one item called the Real George Carlin, and that was his first special. It was not an HBO special. It was. Um, early 70s. It was a network special. Okay. I want to say ABC, but I'm not sure. But um, so it was one of those kind of, you know, networky things that they used to do. And my favorite part about it is that it was uh, sponsored by Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> no, and your father, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Better life through chemicals. Oh. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's great. And then and then it's just this goofy network thing. It's like a variety show. It's like a little bit of him doing stand-up in kind of strange outdoor locations. And then cut to Chris Christopherson doing a little musical number, you wow. know. So it's one of those kind of shows. Um, 
So that's just a weird little freaky thing to watch. But there's another little thing that's very rare and never been seen, which is a sitcom pilot that we did for HBO in 1984, and it's called Apartment 2C. Um, and it was uh, Apartment 2C comes from the apartment number that my dad grew up in, in New York City. Okay. And it's about a New York writer who's trying to get his job work done writing, and he keeps getting interrupted by wacky neighbors and the postman, and I play a punk rock Girl Scout who comes to the door. Hilarious. And there's like Bobcat Goldthwaite's in it and Pat McCormick and um, – so it's this really, really rare gem. It was my acting debut. Um, it went absolutely nowhere. And this is like way before HBO ever was doing, you know, fictional stuff at yeah, all. Scripted TV. Um, scripted stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who were the other, yeah. like, comedy writers helping your dad with this? Um, boy, you know, I'm trying to remember. Uh, God, it was so long ago. I remember hanging out with Bobcat. That was fun. Cool. Uh, there was some other writers on it. I know he wrote a lot of it. One of my favorite bits is at one point he's, um, so frustrated. He's not getting any writing done and he's like, screw it. I'm just going to go watch some TV. And he turns on the TV and then we, you know, we zoom in on the TV and it's an interview with Jesus. Uh, and it's, it's a Lois Bromfield interviewing my dad dressed up as Jesus. And that interview ended up I think in brain droppings, I'm not sure. I'm not okay. like a big archivist of my dad's work, but um, but it's just, it's one of my favorite things my dad ever did is that Jesus interview. That's awesome. You know, I was expecting yeah. more, you know, here's here's a clip of him on an early tonight, you know, like a, a 60s Tonight Show-esque kind of show oh, or some Ed yeah, Sullivan we, we stuff. Yeah, we have a couple like of those. That. We have... Yeah, we have a Hollywood Palace and okay, a CBS sure. Talent Scouts. Cool. Um, we have an early Playboy thing. So that's in there, too, awesome. for sure. And we also have some um, stuff from the Comedy Store and the Comedy Magic Club that was um, him working out material. So him reading, him sitting down, Ooh, cool. like really getting to see his kind of um, creative process, too, which is cool. That's amazing. That's fantastic. You know, honestly, yeah. again, following your dad. It's been such an interesting journey hearing him talk about the various stages of his professional uh, entertainment career because, as I learned, you know, I watched that archive of American television. That's such a great interview. Yeah. And, oh, my God, it's like three hours. And he really – oh, and I'm really glad to hear you say that because it really sounded like he was very candid about everything and really his beginnings and and his changes in his career. Tell me. Yeah, no, he I think it's one of the best interviews he did and he did it about 6 months before he died. So, yeah. thank God. Yeah. You know, really truly, thank God he did that. And um and yeah, he, you know, he at that point in his life really had no qualms about, you know, revealing, you know, his struggles along the way, you know, and and the decisions he had to make and really what's important to him. He'd gotten a lot of clarity as one would, you know, in your in your sixties into your seventies, sure. you know, about about your life and career, and and um, right around that time, I'd seen him at a Paley Center event on stage, and I I just really realized that he was really settling into like the elder statesman of the comedy world. Like he got that a lot of guys tell him and do stand on his shoulders, you know, and that he and Richard and Lenny really were these, these pillars, you know, and, um, and, and so I think that interview really reflects that. 
Agreed. And and it's great that, uh, you know, Jon Stewart and Seinfeld and everybody really does recognize, you know, did recognize and continues to. And, yeah, yeah. man, I mean, that's the thing. And also, well, I want to start because I don't know how many people know. Again, I, I knew from the Archive of American Television interview and also things like Wonderful Wino that he was this 50s rock and roll like boss DJ doing, you know, rock and roll music. Pretty much at the beginning, down like in uh, New Orleans, right? Uh, yeah, he was down in Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. He went in. He he got into the Air Force uh, at age seventeen. He got his mom to, you know, d- sign a little note or something like that because he had already dropped out of high school and he was just kind of, uh, you know, floating and wandering around. And he got into the Air Force and um, ended up at a radio something school down in Shreveport, Louisiana. And whoever his superiors were, they figured out that he wasn't going to be <laughs> much of a, of uh, you know, a, a true um, contributor to the <laughs> Air Force life. Um, but they, uh, he, I, I don't even know. How, I can't even remember the story. Of course, you could read about it in Last Words, his, his um, posthumous memoir. But mm-hmm. he somehow got connected to this local TV, uh, local radio station, and his superiors thought, you know what, this would be good for the base. This will be good PR. This will be good community relations. Have one of our guy on the air. And so, yeah, he got his big break down there, and he got a chance to – he spun records in the top 40 and all that kind of stuff, and he got to put on his, you know, DJ voice <laughs> and all of that. And um, that first boss was one of the people who said to him – or was the person who said to him, you know, George, the most important thing to do if you want to, you know, be an entertainer or be a comedian or whatever it was he was t- saying at the time was – he told him to write down everything that, you know, he felt was important, you know, write down your ideas. Don't let them get away from you because they will. You'll think you'll remember it and you won't. And my dad took that to heart. I mean, you know, and he he talks about that, I think, in that interview is that, you know, he really would write everything down. And now here we are. 60 years later or 70, you know, (laughs) however many years later. And, you know, the archives of what we have are a lot of those handwritten notes, not from over the decades too much because he would toss them out. But, um, but we have quite a few from the last decade of his life. And, um, and I remember as a kid on every flat surface in our house was a pad and a pen, you know, so if an idea came to him, he, it was right there, you know, whether it's the kitchen or the living room or whatever, there was always a pad in the room. That's fantastic. And uh, and also, I love, as his comedy evolved, that pieces really became, you know, uh, spoken word performances that really every word mattered, the timing, the inflection. And I loved how he loved the rhythm of words and really got into not just the words themselves, but the right inflection and the right timing. And, you know, yet they became like spoken word, like little, you know, sonnets, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there was the, there was certainly the essay form, which is what I thought, you know, like his more constructed cultural pieces were, but then there were things like modern man, certainly, or advertising lullaby, which are these like (laughs) poems they are, there are these rhythmic oral poems, you know, and you can really see the Danny Kay influence in that moment, you know, it's it's really there. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and again, then from being a DJ, he hooks up while he's in radio 
with another comedian that people might not even realize that George was part of a two-man uh, comedy team, Jack Burns. And if people don't know Jack Burns, when Barney left Andy Griffith, there was that one season where Warren was the deputy. <laughs> and I mean, I know, I remember Burns and Schreiber, his, his second uh, partner. Yep, you know, with Jack Avery Burns, Schreiber, yep. Yeah, talented comic. Yep. And I Very, very quick-witted. Jack's very, very quick-witted. And he's kind of a recluse now, which is kind of sad because he's one of those guys that you would love to hear the evolution of his career and especially his his time with your dad. Yeah, I know. I've tried to get him to come out. I think he's having some health issues, too, which breaks my sure. heart. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, right after my dad died, he, we connected. Of course, he came to the memorial and he oh, that's great. and, you know, I'm like really glad. like all the comics that came to the memorial, you know, they all killed, of course, you know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, Jack, that's, the, and, that's the great thing about a about a comedian's memorial is you get that release from these really wonderful people that, you know, love love the deceased, but also, you know, kind of want to send them off with a laugh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um he he's so sharp, so sharp, you know, and he's the one who really converted my father to much more progressive ideas. Um, my dad wasn't a very political person before he met Jack, and my dad's mom was basically a, you know, kind of a business person, moderate Republican, a Goldwater Republican, I guess they used to call wow. him. And my dad okay. was basically a Republican, and then he met Jack, and Jack completely radicalized my dad. Wow. <laughs> Are, is there yeah. evidence of their stand-up? Like, do you have anything in, in, in this collection that represents their stand-up? No, we don't have any Jack and George in this, I don't think. Unless that Playboy Penthouse piece. We had another piece in here of them together, but um, we couldn't get a good clearance for it. But it, it might be this Playboy Penthouse piece, though, that's in the bonus track. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but, but it is out there. They are out there somewhere lingering about. Wow. No, I, again, these unknown, you know, moments of your father's career. And then, um, he, you know, he, he splits off from Jack and, you know, starts doing his own thing. And uh, I loved, again, in this archive of American television interview, which I really stressed to all the Carlin fans, if you haven't watched it, you should. Um, he has that, um, that, that a realization that he was kind of between generations and that he yeah. was – you know, uh, in the in the summer of '67, I'll, I'll let you like finish the thought. But it, it, you know that it kind of came to him that where he was in his age and where the culture was right in the middle of the culture wars. Yeah, I mean, he was hanging out with rock musicians. You know, I mean, those those were his people. You know, he had been smoking weed since he was I don't know 14 years old in the '50s. So. You know, he was ahead, what, what they used to call ahead, sure. H-E-A-D, um, and that's who he was, and that's who our friends were, and that's, you know, and so then he, you know, started experimenting with psychedelics, and it, you know, really shifted his mindset, and, and he really did. He was so frustrated because he felt trapped inside of this persona that was very successful and, and giving him a lot of career success, but it was killing his soul. And um, so he knew he had to make a switch and that he, he really was. He was this age, you know, 1967, he was 30. 
which was, you know, untouchable. Of course, you know, you, you weren't supposed to trust anyone over 30 right. in the 60s. Um, so here were these kids who were in their early 20s, you know, a few years younger than him. And these parents who were, for the most part, in their 40s. Um, and yeah, and he was he was entertaining the parents at these supper clubs in Vegas and and stuff like that. And and the TV shows he was doing and, and the bits he was doing in the TV, you know, like uh, Wonderful Wine. I know, which is still brilliant to this day, the hippy dippy weatherman and um, and the Indian sergeant and stuff. But they, no one would let him do anything new, and he had all this new stuff in him that he wanted to talk about, and all this you know this world that was well, you know. I mean, 1968, we had assassinations and the Man on the Moon. I mean, the whole world was changing. So he made the big leap at that point and realized that you know if he was going to have any longevity and have any real meaning to his own work. He had to take the risk. And, um, you know, he'd gotten fired for saying shit on stage in Vegas. And um, before that, he was opening for the Supremes. You know, he was getting like $12,000 a week. And um, I mean, that's a ton of money in 1968, 69. I mean, 70. I mean, it's incredible. And he got fired and walked away from it all and said to my mom, I have to do this. And she said, okay, we'll just start all over again. And we did. We moved from Beverly Hills to Venice Beach where all the hippies and the freaks were and the the Hells Angels. And uh, it wasn't the Venice Beach it is today. And, um, And he started over. And... Within two years, you know, FMA, that's why he did the album FMAM, to introduce the change to his fans. I think it's such a clever way of doing it, to have one side be all the clean stuff and then the other side be the new stuff. And um, so within three years, we had FMAM, Class Clown, Occupation Fool. You know, I think all went gold, you know. Uh, So it was... Then, you know, then he took the counterculture by storm and he was one of those people like Richard Pryor yes. at the time who was really, you know, on on the edge and, and, and you know, carrying, helping to carry the culture with rock and roll and all of that to, to a new place. And did he ever, you know, have these kind of deep conversations with uh, his contemporaries like Pryor or Robert Klein. I mean, and again, because like you said, he made a conscious effort, and really, it could have been career suicide because, like you said, he was a bankable comedian on all the talk shows, on all the variety shows. He had a some he was on a summer replacement, you know, variety show for Jackie Gleason, and I know for a while. So yeah, the John slots. Davidson. That's what that's what brought us out to L.A. That show. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I don't know. You know, I was a kid during all of this. Right, understood. I was out playing. I was out riding my bike and skateboarding. <laughs> um, and, and he didn't hang out. And we didn't have, like, you know, comedian parties at our house okay. or anything like that. Um, and these guys generally traveled in different places. You know, uh, they were all doing colleges and stuff. So they weren't hanging out at clubs. My dad didn't hang out at the clubs a lot. Not that I know of, at least. Okay. I think he did a little bit working out material. But, um God, I wish, you know, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. I mean, I know he ran into these people and they were clearly colleagues and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know what they were all thinking at the time. I think a lot of them were just doing a lot of drugs, (laughs) (laughs) including my father. So, you know. No, I... um... You know, again, yeah, like you say, the, those those uh, three comedy albums, FMAM, 
uh, Class Clown, Occupation Fool. Yeah, in fact, I know on Occupation Fool, it was such a hit that uh, doesn't he get a Grammy that's on the album where someone informs him, hey, I, I guess I won a Grammy for Class Clown or whatever album it was. He's like, cool. You know, and it was, it's on the album, which is fantastic. You know, and he, yep. That's, yep. that's amazing. And again, he made this transformation. And again, the old guard, not only like was he entertaining the parents, but also that generation of comedians before him, the Alan Kings and the Jackie Vernons and those, mm-hmm. those Ed Sullivan staples that mm-hmm. were those take my wife, please people. And, and hey, man, I like, you know, that shtick is great. Henny Youngman and all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's why, like you said, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor and your father, they were part of that cultural shift. Robert Klein also, you know, that, yep. that all right, it's time for a different kind of comedy. And um, I think young co- uh, comic fans that love what happened in the 90s and in these 2000s and the alt comedy shift that's been happening for like the last 20 years or so, you know, around mm-hmm. the Internet age and everything. It's uh, yeah, it's it's that's why I love hearing from people of your father's era, because what happened in the 60s, I really feel and you might as well, is happening now. And it's great to get a perspective from those people and hear their thoughts about what's going on now. And in your dad's case, it's like he left us this time capsule literally up to his final HBO performances and live performances where if you want to know, at least my feeling, and I want to know what you think your dad would think about today's political environment, but it's kind of there in the material. Oh, yeah. I think if you know my dad's material from the last 10 years, 15, well, starting with Jammin' in New York, basically, yep. you watch all of those HBO specials, you could glean a lot from them about what he would think about today, you know. Um, and there's so many different things that I think he'd be um, – you know, one of one of the things he said, which I think was really his main – perspective on things was. And when people ask me, like, what do you think your dad would think? I mean, there's just, it's an impossible question to answer, of course. course. But I always tell people, you know, he had this great line that said, you know, when you're born, you're born a ticket, you're born with a ticket to the freak show. (laughs) And when you're born in America, you're, you're born with a front row seat. (laughs) And if that phrase (laughs) isn't more apt today than it has ever been. I don't know, you know, what else he could possibly say about these days. Um, you know, and, and the thing is he would love the chaos of a lot of it. And of course he loathed, loathed human beings like Donald Trump. Yep. So, um, you know, it would be clear that there would be a lot of, um, vitriol aimed at him. But my dad didn't do local politics. You know, he rarely brought up a politician's name and and went out and did daily show kind of material. He would have found a way to talk about the culture. Well, first of all, he would skewer us all for social media. I have no (laughs) doubt about that. The minute social media began, I thought to myself, thank God he's not here. He died in 2008. Facebook started becoming a thing that year. I thought, oh, my God, thank God he's not here to tell me to make fun of me as I get on this thing, you know, to talk about him. Uh, So, you know, I know he would skewer us for all of that and all of the selfies. I mean, the whole selfie generation thing, he would just, oh, he would just get down on us, you know, this human species and what we're doing with all this stuff. Um, 
So yeah, it would it would be fascinating. But um, you know, on the other hand, right now this last month he would have turned eighty one this year, and and I think about that if he had had perfect health and he didn't have serious heart disease and heart failure like he had, you know, what would he be doing at eighty one? And I I know he'd be writing, I know he'd be commenting still. Um, but I don't know how much he'd be actually on the road at 81, you know, touring. Uh, but boy, I would love for him to have, you know, to have had a YouTube, you know, we could have set up a YouTube studio in the house for him. Right. And you just turn on the camera 20 minutes a day and let him go at it. You know, he'd probably have 10 million followers. No question. (laughs) Well, and again, like you said, he, he passed away too late for the social media experience, but he was on point with gizmos as he put it and he said we're all fascinated with gizmos that's you know that's yeah. you know that's our our as he, as he was too you know he oh, loved that's hilarious his, he, <laughs> he had the first iphone you know i, I inherited know his his iphone he loved his computers he he got a new apple computer every year all he used it for was writing an email it's like dad you don't need <laughs> processors that can send a rocket ship to the moon, you know, uh, but he didn't care. He loved stuff like that. And, um, so yeah, he loved the gizmos and, uh, and he loved his iPhone. It was the most magical thing in the world that he could take pictures of, you know, people and, and send them to people and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, he'd, uh, he'd have a few things to say. <laughs> no question. And, and again, it's, I, I was watching a bunch of uh, Amazon prime has a bunch of uh, the HBO stuff up right now. Yes. And uh, again, it's so it, you got to get these DVDs because um, it's great to watch your dad's evolution of his career. But pretty much any hot topic that is upsetting the culture left or right, your dad's got an opinion on it. Abortion and, um, like we said, technology. Politics, I loved his whole dismissive thing of, please, this country's been bought and sold you know, a hundred times over and we've squandered yep. the, the great yes. ideals of the American Yes, dream. we did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you really, really, you really seeing it, you know, come to, come to manifestation right now. Um, one thing I, I love about this box set, you know, we, we had done a box set, I think maybe, I don't know when it was, 15, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was a few years before my dad died. And, Obviously, it didn't have all the HBO shows in it, and that's what I kind of like about this one. And this has all 14, so the last two, Life is Worth Losing and It's Bad for You, that weren't in it, and they also have the Blu-ray in this thing. But one little gem that had never been released before that is in this box set is um, a kind of unique HBO show. It was uh, It was shot at the Aspen Comedy Festival in 97, it's between Back in Town and You Are All Diseased, and it's called George Carlin, 40 Years of Comedy. And it was him going up, doing a little stand-up. I don't remember the second bit, but I know one of the bits was the advertising lullaby yep. thing. It's got a nice little retrospective of his career. Someone did a really nice little mini-doc. And then there's about a 20, 25-minute, I don't know how long, uh, interview that John Stewart does with him. Yep. A very young John Stewart. I mean, this is 21 years ago. John has not a nary a gray hair, and, and had not gotten close to the Daily Show yet. But um, and it's a really beautiful interview um, because it's one of the first times he really did reveal 
parts of himself to the world. He was a very private man, didn't talk about himself much, didn't talk about, you know, the the, the background and stuff. So, but he talked about some of his people uh, in his family who really inspired him and who had the same kind of gift of the gab. And, and he talks about stuff like that and he wells up at one point. I mean, it's really a a quite powerful interview. So it's, it's a special little gem in there too. Um, and, and I just liked that, you know, like my dad liked it when it was like the complete set of things, you know, like he always aspired to have all of his albums released on vinyl and we haven't done that yet. Someday we will. And because he just, he liked sets of things like that, you know, and there's like some sort of like the fact that it's like, here's what I've done, you know? And, and I think, I think he would like this. Now, this doesn't have all the audio albums on it because we're still, there were some that we don't own and all of that kind of stuff. And we're still working on making sure we, we own all of his stuff. But as far as the video stuff, this is the, you know, the great DVD collection here. And, um, with, with one, one exception for the audio, which is the, um, the new CD we released last year with the very cheery title, I kind of like it when a lot of people die. <laughs> <laughs> Which we posthumously released last year. It was an audio recording we found in the archives that he had taped uh, two nights. He had done shows, I think it was in Vegas, uh, right before 9-11. And he was working on his next next HBO show, which was titled, I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die. And so this show, he had already kind of cemented the material. He was going to tape it in November uh, for HBO. And he even talks about Osama bin Laden in it. I mean, it's just wow. fascinating. And um, and of course, you know, we all woke up on 9-11 and the next day – you know, HBO called and said, you can't call it that. Wow. And my dad said, I agree, of course, because he was taping it in New York City, too. And okay. and, and who knew how long it was going to take for anyone to even want to be to laugh again. Sure. Um, so he ended up rearranging that concert and um, doing a bunch of different things, ended up calling it Complaints and Grievances. Okay. And, and so some things dropped out of that show. Um, and, uh, ended up, you know, later in some of the other shows later, but this is his, his original vision, at least in the audio of that show. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that's the thing, man, a guy like your dad experienced all these different cultural shifts and, and always had something to say about them. And like you said, front row in the freak show. Yeah. I mean, that's I, I just watched <laughs> exactly. that part of the Archive of American Television interview when he said that. And and yeah, it was yeah. great. That really does sum up your dad. in term, And also that he wasn't to, at least. And, and again, this is the uh, public front that he would give about it, that it didn't bum him out. Is that the case? I mean, like he said, no, I'm enjoying this circling the drain. I like watching the the you know civilization circling the drain is that how he felt in in personal life yeah you know i i used to really push up against that a lot with him because i 
um, A, I am, you know, 25 years younger than my dad and was like, hey, I'm going to be on the planet a little while longer. Don't really like circling the drain metaphor thing, you know. Oh, you're going to be gone, but no, it's going to be Mad Max when I'm in my 70s. Um, That'll be fun. Uh, So, yeah, and I, you know, I had said to him once, we had had a breakfast, and I said to him, you know, Dad, um, if if you really don't care, if you've really detached yourself from the species, then why bother? Why bother going out there? Why bother saying anything? And he looked at me and he said, you know, touche. Um, he says, what you, what you have here essentially is a brokenhearted idealist. And this is my protection. And this is how, you know, we, we believed in the promise of the 60s. Yeah. And then the 80s came and all these motherfuckers sold out. Yeah, and, it, and once again, greed won. And, uh, you know, and he goes, that's when I realized that, you know, there's probably no hope for this experiment. So, so yeah, I, I think it's both. I think human beings are that complicated. I think he could take that stance as an artist because it's a really, really freeing stance to take because then you can really comment not just on the culture, but the species as a whole, which I think is important. Um, and it's very much what spiritual teachers do. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I mean, look at, think about it. You know, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Alan Watts listening, but, you know, Alan Watts takes you, you know, like you're in a spaceship out looking at Earth, you know, and you're like, oh, that it's a really mind-expanding perspective. But he, he was also a man who said regularly, but, you know, give me an individual to have a conversation with and you can see the whole universe in their eyes. Um, you know, and the whole potential of the universe, and the whole potential of the species in their eyes. So, you know, he was alive to that also, you know. Interesting. Well, and also, I appreciate, and, I, and I'm really glad you point out Jammin' in New York as uh, a big moment for him, because, again, all these different evolutions of his kind of comedy, and in the 70s and in uh, FM, AM, AM, FM, and, and Occupation Fool and Class Clown, you have the jumbo shrimp and military intelligence and a lot of the wordplay. And then some period in the 80s around Place for My Stuff, it seemed like as an observer, your dad was kind of like, again, much like in the 60s, uh, ready for another evolution in his stand-up. And um, I, I always wondered what the impotence was to, to you know, kind of go into uh, the angry man that represented, you know, the last... 15 years or so of of what he was doing and again it just felt like he was re-energized his material had a new focus and purpose and um you know can you yeah any any insight into why the change and and what he was thinking you know as he evolved i think you know i've thought about this a lot because as you know i, I wrote a memoir about my life and did a solo show yeah. about it all you know uh and so i had a lot of Paul Provenza, who helped me develop and direct my solo show, we'd have a lot of conversations because we were trying to find the kind of parallel track between his career and his evolution in his career and then his my evolution in my own life Absolutely. and finding our own voices. Sure. 
to really make the solo show really have this beautiful kind of parallel storytelling going on. And, and, and really what I had come to the conclusion was, was two things. One of which was coming out of the eighties, which, you know, for a lot of us was hell. Um, and, you know, and, and was this very, um, just like I said earlier, you know, this complete rejection of the ideals of the 60s and, you know, this whole very, um, you know, jingoistic version of America that was being shown forth when, you know, there were all these secret wars and arms deals and all of these business things going on. So I think there was a lot of us like coming out of the 80s, by 88 coming around, we're all just, you know, and then Bush comes in, you know, we're just... There was a real like, all right, now what kind of a thing. And I think dad might have even felt like, okay, well, and this is when he talks about too, like, you know, seeing Sam Kinison during this time screaming at his audiences and my dad thinking, oh, I guess we have to scream at them now because they're not listening. Interesting. So I think that's part of it. And I think also the other part of it is that his mother died in the late 80s. And I think it was 86 or 87, somewhere around that. And my dad was raised by her. He, you know, he didn't have a dad. My dad's dad died when my dad was young and he never knew him. And so his mother was a huge presence in his life always and on the planet. And for those of us who have lost a parent, know that when the parent leaves, there's, of course, a lot of sadness and grief and loss and all of that. But there's also this other thing that happens, which is, oh, they're not here anymore watching what I do. And there's a sense of freedom also. And I think that plant, that, that shifted something in him too, that sense of freedom that he could go in directions that maybe as a son, he didn't feel permission, you know, even though he was one of the most expressed people we know. Um, And I think it was a combination of those two things and the culture shifting. And he, he just decided to just kind of take things on a little more head on. And that's where he was at. And, and it started with, you know, you can see it a little bit in what am what am I doing in New Jersey? I think, you know, there's maybe one bit where there's a little bit of edginess and then you see it even a little more and do it again. And then he comes out and jam it in New York. And it is, I mean, it is, I feel his seminal work and, and yeah. he did too. He felt it was his, you know, the best thing he is most proud of that he's ever done, you know, and um, you really do feel the energy of it. And it was one of those moments where he was saying things that he was pissing everyone off because at that show, uh, when they taped it, there were some environmental activists that had uh, planned on protesting because he'd been doing the material on the road. And I guess the word got out that he had this, you know, this bit called the planet is fine. And, um, and the environmentalists, you know, wanted to protest it because they felt he was talking about, you know, he was, you know, he rejects the concept of humans having the hubris to save the planet when we all know that, um, you know, in the end, mother earth wins. Of course, that's the whole point of the bit. Um, and this is a man who recycled, by the way, you know, he did recycle. Um, <laughs> he did care deeply about the environment. I mean, that was the point of it too, was that we're not going to change, you know, we're not going to, you know, and, and so, 
and and of course, you know, and people nowadays use it as a global warming deniers use it all the time on their Facebook pages and stuff. And I stopped trying to police all this, wow. but I try to explain to them that really what that piece is about is him being angry at the yuppies for the most part for wanting to save the planet for their own convenience, that they're really not interested in ecosystems and mother nature as she comes. They just don't want to be inconvenienced by, you know, what's going to happen to the planet when it all goes to shit. Um, And that was, that was his deeper point in all of that. Man. And doesn't that suck that like assholes that you know, your dad would be diametrically opposed to, We'll try and use your dad as that example. I mean, God, it's like oh, oof. it's it. The first few years after he died on Facebook, I it would just make my blood boil. And I had a couple of big George Carlin fan groups, and um, one time there was a really conservative think tank that took his bit about the owners of America and made a meme out of it. But they changed the owners of America and the word business into government. I mean, they like completely changed they, the they meaning. They actually went of to the audio meme. and they went to the audio and, and like substitute. No, they made a meme out of it. Oh, they I see. quoted him in a picture. Oh, okay, yes, and they, okay, sure. And they replaced the word business or owners with government sure. um, for their libertarian think tank, their conservative libertarian, you know, free market think tank. And I just went to the George Carlin group. I, someone sent it to me, and I just went to them, and I said, here's the name of this group. Here's what they're doing. Go do what you must do. <laughs> about 2,000 people went and just started inundating this group. It was, it was really one of the, like, the most satisfying moments of my life. Wow, that's great to hear the, you know, the, the other side uh, use that yes. kind of alt-right technique and, and, yes, and shut down yes. a bunch of assholes. That's fantastic. It did. It did, but then I stopped policing it all because it's exhausting, and I can't. Sure. I just, you know, you, all you can do is put the right stuff out there, and keep. All I can do is keep talking about him and making sure that the good stuff's out there, and that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then every once in a while, if I come across it and it's egregious, I'll I'll make a point of it. But um, yeah, I, it's a full time job otherwise, and it doesn't interest me. No, I understand. You know, I really uh, I, I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast, and it, and I'm glad. I, I've recently had a couple other guests on that are kind of figuring themselves out, looking back at their parents and stuff. And, it, and you know, it, that's kind of part of the game. As we get older, we do, as you say. I mean, when your when your uh, when your father's mom, when your grandmother passed away, and and again in mm-hmm. those interviews, your dad does get pretty candid about how. I don't know if domineering is the right word, but yeah, that your 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 grandmother really did yeah. have a, a kind of a set agenda, and because uh, your grandfather your grandfather like left the family like kind of early before he passed. Well, away. she walked out. He, well, he was a baby out. when when she left. Oh yeah, he was a very very raging drunk. Okay. Um, he when he was sober, he was amazing. When he was drunk, he was murderous rage guy. Okay. So yeah, no grandma grandma snuck out the uh, back of the apartment down the fire escape to her brother's car with some my dad as a baby and his brother Patrick I think it was about five years old wow yeah I mean that's all right well and again that's you know we are we are a product of our parents and our and our upbringing and and yeah exactly so I I really enjoyed hearing your episode with uh, Gary Shandling kind of talking about your dad and also my first my first episode was it really the first one that's fantastic you get man great job out of the box man great first episode well, he was he he, he after he, I invited him to my dad's memorial, 
And then he and I became very close friends, and he um, became a mentor to me and a dear friend. Um, I also, we would go to lunch, and he would mentor me, and, and, and then I would be his therapist. <laughs> There's actually a great bonus conversation between the two of us on the audiobook version of my book. Um, uh, he and I talking about this, about our relationship and our friendship. And um, yeah, he really, Gary really, you know, my dad had done Gary a solid when Gary was a college student and brought some writing to my dad. And my dad told him that he was funny and he should go for it. And Gary quit school and came to Hollywood. That's incredible. Um, so there was a big, very intense tie for them together, for Gary and my dad. And um, so Gary really became this person who really supported me as I wrote my solo show and performed it and came to lots of different performances and so that's how, but that's how I met him. And that's how, and that's why he agreed to be my first guest because he knew like he, he wanted to help me. He really did. He was, he was such a kind, kind man. Well, again, it comes through in the conversation uh, that I heard. And um, so like, what is, what is your current career path or what, what you're doing with all this? Because I'm, I'm really glad that you are the keeper of the flame, your father's flame and everything. But, you know, no, yeah, what, you. You know, yeah, absolutely. My God, it's a, it's such a, he's such an important person culturally. He is. And he can't, yeah, I, but, yeah, can't go away. But yeah, what, you know, so tell me about that, but also what else you're doing. So I, I've just spent the last two years kind of in pause mode after my memoir came out in 2015. And then the paperback came out in 2016. And I really, I knew I was done with the solo show and, I knew, I mean, writing the memoir and telling my family story and telling my story had been a, something that I'd wanted to do for about 15 years, way before my dad died. And um, and I talk about it in the show and the book about the struggle my dad and I had around my storytelling and my wanting to tell autobiographical stuff. And and that was not his art form. So we we had some tension around that. But so I was, I really felt done with that arc and knew that I wanted to circle back around to some of my other interests. I really loved my podcast. I put it on pause for two years because I didn't know what I wanted to do with it exactly. But my podcast where really is where I found my voice, where, where I really got to discover who is it that I want to talk to? Um, what is it that I want to talk about? What are, you know, what's the inner life? For me, it's, I'm always interested in the inner life stuff. I got my master's in Jungian psychology. I'm a practicing Buddhist. Um, so for, for me, it's all about the inside job. What's going on in here? Sure. And and I love talking about the culture also from those perspectives, trying to find a fresh perspective on what's going on in the culture, looking at it psychologically or mythologically or archetypally is really fun for me. Um, and so I, I so right after the election of Mr. Donald Trump, um, I decided you know what I want to create a little space for people to have a little respite from the 24-7, which I now call the 60-24-7 news cycle, because every 60 minutes the news changes, not 24-7 anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to help people have a respite from that and from the anxiety around that, sure. because half the country is in panic. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and even some of the people that voted for him, I think, are in panic also. And, remorse, and um, yes. And... And at the same time, I also know that like we're all inundated with technology and these smartphones and media and, you know, there's like there's very little space, time and space for us to just take a pause. So I started teaching online 
this thing called uh, Unplug, and I do a live 90-minute webinar on Sundays. It's kind of like Church with Kelly. And we do an actual meditation, and then I do a little talk, and then I do a little either Q&A, or I put out some powerful questions for people to write in their journals and kind of get their mindset in, in a good place for the week. And so I've been doing that for a year, and now that's turning, it's just blossomed completely now. I'm actually next week on my birthday, June 15th. I don't know when the podcast is going up. It'll be but that week. Go on. Oh, perfect. Uh, it's my birthday next Friday, so for the 15th, I'm launching my Patreon page. Hey, that's great. And uh, Yep, and on that is going to have my podcast. People will be able to get it early and spend a few bucks a month. Like, it's two bucks, I think it is, to support the podcast. I'm going to have my unplug, uh, my Sunday unplug access to the class there. I got a couple of other things, and I'm also launching a business right now around a, a year-long program for women, um, accomplished women who are looking for something deeper, wider, and more meaningful uh, for the next phase of their life, and I'm very excited about that, um, and then I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I'm always teaching. I'm teaching at Chautauqua Institute this summer. I'm teaching at a place called 1440 Multiversity, doing a kind of a wide range of different stuff. Um, lecturing here and there. Um, but that's my thing. You know, I like, I love performing. I love writing. Um, I don't have a big creative push right now. You know, I feel like I've satisfied that for a while. But I love this other work because I get a chance to do some writing and some, not performing, but at least being in public, speaking, sharing my thoughts. And then really being of service. I mean, that that's really fun for me. The webinar is great. I get to be silly. I get to swear. <laughs> and we get to be spiritual. That's <laughs> and great. that for me is heaven. <laughs> that's excellent. No, that's great, honestly. Yeah. And it's, it, again, as, a, as an observer, it's been fun watching your evolution. And uh, it was great. You oh, know, thank you. Absolutely. And, and, yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you're finding room for both. And, you know, you yeah. to, to serve yourself and also... Uh, like I said, preserve your dad's memory and uh, and keep that all alive. And and again, I, I it's it, it's really you know again based on what you're even saying now and stuff, you get it too. It's such an interesting time, and I do think that yeah. we need reasoned observers to really speak up past the the shouting match that's going on on the sixty twenty four seven cycle uh, that you point yeah. out. It's it's you know I come from sports radio, and hearing the news shows. It's it's sports. These are Yankees and Mets fans yelling at yes, each other and not is. listening to it's each other. It's all tribal. Yep. Yep. Totally. And and yep, so it is. So again, it's you know I I not to name drop, but about six months ago I had Kareem Abdul Jabbar on, and it's so great mm. to see his essays and and hear him mm -hmm. speak because again, he's a great writer and observer. Yes. Right. Well, and again, these these people like your dad, they lived it. And it's really, I think, these are the voices that I think really need to, all these people in their 70s can really need to step up and, and say, hey, we went through this before. This is not the first yeah. time this happened. As crazy, and, and agreed that th there are some extremes that are even crazier than some of the things that happened in the 60s and the Nixon era and things like that. But, yeah. you know, yeah, it's it's they can at least give us their version of the freak show that they lived with. And and I really, mm -hmm. you know, that's why every time John Dean is on, and again, you got to hear him over the din of everybody else or, you know, uh, people like Carl oh. Bernstein that, you know, still are willing to kind of talk about what's going on and compare it. To well, that. yeah, I I had John on my show, too. And okay. um, 
I did. And we talked about his book, um, Conservatives Without a Conscience, and really delved into the psychology of the conservative mind and the, uh, the, the the authoritarianism that can happen from that. And I mean, that was, you know, I think that I did that in 2011, 2012, something like that. And yeah, John's a great observer of this kind of stuff. And, and ha- yes, I mean, has seen it all. And as we get further and further into this, uh, you know, this whole uh, law, you know, is there, is there someone above the law or not? Um, it's really getting fascinating. So yeah, these guys are, it is, it's important for us to lean into our elders right now and to hear from them because they've got a lot of wisdom and they've got perspectives, like you said, unique perspectives on getting through a chaotic error of this country, um, one where ev- everyone feels a little unsafe. And that's definitely what the 60s felt like for everybody, you know. Um, and I think in the end, I-, I think we're resilient enough as a country. I think this uh, system is resilient enough. And and there's a lot of good stuff that's coming out. I mean, the silver lining in all of this is that we're talking about misogyny. We're talking about racism in a very interesting way. And we're talking about identity politics and the importance of it. And yet how at the same time, identity politics in its own can create divisions in the culture. And we're talking about political correctness and what does it mean to offend people? You know, so there's a lot of good conversations going on. They're just, none of them are pleasant. Um, That's, you know, they're not, they're hard conversations and we just need a lot of grownups in the room to help us navigate the, you know, them. Agreed. Well, again, that's why I really feel like your dad's uh, collective uh, performances are kind of like this this time capsule that you can, you know, open now in the future. And it's like, oh, no, there's wisdom there. And, and a lot of it applies to what's going on today. As we wrap up, uh, give people the uh, go-to uh, places to order you know, I, it's the the box that's coming out. I'm sure Amazon and uh, God, I don't know how many video stores are left. So I guess online is the best place to probably pick up. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. I was, you know, I've been promoting it a little bit on social media, and I just put up a different online store each time I do it because, <laughs> I, you know, I can't even imagine. I suppose you could walk into a Target, but I don't think so. Um, but yeah, a, a, any large box store uh, might have it in in person, but certainly online. And you know, whatever your favorite seller is, if you've got an independent <laughs> one, order it through them. You know, do do the extra step. And, and pay the extra $30 if you want to support your independent bookstore or, you know, local family store, because that's that's well worth it. But um, but, it, but it's available anywhere. And, uh, yeah, it's it's available on the 12th, I believe. So Well, there's a lot of, as you said, unhidden gems that I really can't wait to uh, get delve into and uh, understand uh, your dad a little bit more, hopefully, from these performances, from these interviews that are that are part of the box set and. Uh, yeah, I, I thank you so much for doing this. Truly, I, I'm uh, like I said, I, I've I've been uh, it's been fun to discover your career. And uh, again, as someone who's enjoyed your father's work for 40 plus years, it's a uh, it's a real pleasure to uh, learn more about him through through our conversation. So thank you for doing this. Well, my my, my pleasure, John. And uh, this was really fun. And it's always great to have, you know, good conversation. That's Kelly Carlin. The George Carlin Commemorative Collection is available now. Check it out at Amazon, anywhere you buy uh, DVDs. 
It's an incredible set, but uh, you're going to not only get his great HBO specials, but also uh, some appearances uh, back in the 60s. Uh, the Mad Men era of George Carlin on variety shows like Talent Scouts, The Jackie Gleason Show, Hollywood Palace, a couple stand-up comedy specials, even a, a never-aired HBO uh, pilot, Apartment 2C, that Kelly and I discussed earlier. But, uh, man, I am telling you, very, very excited about this box set and uh, really excited to dig in more into the history of George Carlin. I hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon. Thanks a lot for listening. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support via Patreon, and uh, I, I thank you enough for uh, can keeping the, help keeping the show running. If you enjoyed today's show, you can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter, at John Word Balloon. I'm on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and of course, the Word Balloon Network. But uh, thanks for joining me today on this very special episode. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.